And Nancy did read the right passage. The bulletin didn't throw her off. So that's page 838 if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. This is a quite a challenging passage, isn't it? I'm sweating up here already. In the uh, first commentary I opened about this passage, I noticed it began with these words. This is undoubtedly one of the most difficult passages in the whole New Testament. That's an encouraging beginning. <laughs> well, having dug into the passage myself now, let me give you a couple reasons that this is such a tough passage as if you needed them. The first one is that Paul is talking about something here that he and the Thessalonians already know something about, but which is completely new to us. Have you ever listened to someone talking on the phone and you could only hear one side of the conversation and you tried from that side to work out what the conversation was about? We've all done that, right? Well, whenever we read one of the letters of the New Testament, that's what, in effect, we're doing. Paul or Peter or whoever's writing the letter knows or knows something about the people that he's writing to and what their circumstances are. Often he's responding to something that's going on in the church that he's writing to, and he knows what that something is, and they know what that something is, but we later readers don't know. So we've got to try to figure it out based on the one side of the conversation that we can hear. And sometimes that's pretty easy. And other times, that's really difficult. And when it tends to be especially difficult is when the two people who are talking make reference to something which they've already talked about before. So, for instance, you're at work and a coworker's talking on the phone. And you hear her say something like, remember what he said to the waitress last night? Or, all right, see you, same bat time, same bat place. Or, you're not going to believe this. She did it to him again. And you have no idea what they're talking about. Well, that's basically the situation we have here in 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul is reminding the Thessalonians of some things that he and they have already talked about before. Verse 5, Paul says, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? So commentator William Barclay concludes, this passage is so difficult because it's using terms and thinking in pictures which were perfectly familiar to the Thessalonians, but which are utterly strange to us. The second reason this passage is so difficult is that this passage has to do with prophecy about the future and future prophecy at the best of times is hard to understand. I mean, look at the track record of God's people. How many prophecies are there in the Old Testament which pointed to Jesus? Hundreds, right? And yet, how many people recognized Jesus as the Messiah when he came? Very few. And the few that did totally got wrong what kind of Messiah he was going to be. So much for understanding Old Testament prophecy. And if you read the New Testament and you look at 
some of the places where the New Testament writers who now have Jesus' teaching and the Holy Spirit to, to, to help them, and they quote Old Testament prophecies, and the New Testament writers say, see, this was fulfilled, uh, what was spoken in the past by the prophet Isaiah, for example. And then you flip back to Isaiah and, and you read that prophecy and you say, boy, I never would have gotten that out of that Isaiah text. Have you had that experience? <laughs> prophecy is notoriously hard to interpret. I mean, look at church history. William Miller, to whom the Seventh-day Adventists and other groups traced their roots, predicted that Jesus would come back on October 22, 1844. Charles Russell, an early leader of the group that became the Jehovah's Witnesses, predicted it would be 1874. Later, the Jehovah's Witnesses revised it and said it would be 1914. Herbert Armstrong, founder of Worldwide Church of God, predicted it would be 1975. Jerry Falwell predicted it would be 2009. And one famous preacher who's still preaching today predicted it would be 1994, and now he's revised it to 2011. Prophecies about the future, like the one that is before us this morning, are notoriously hard to interpret. All this to say that for both of the reasons that I mentioned, we need to approach the text before us this morning with a good deal of humility. You know, it's interesting that the more mysterious and vague that a passage is, the more ink is spilled trying to explain it. There have been numerous pages written about this passage. There have been numerous prophetic schemes based, at least in part, on it. Boy, when something isn't clear, it can mean just about anything. And so there's always someone ready to come along with a new interpretation. Maybe they can build a career. Maybe they can gain a following off that new interpretation. But if we this morning are going to get anything useful out of this passage, we'd better begin by asking, what did Paul mean when he wrote it? And what did the Thessalonians, who knew what he was talking about, understand him to mean? And when we just can't be sure of the answer to those questions, then we'd better leave it at that and just say, sorry, we don't know. Sound good? Sound like a plan? Okay, let's see what we can figure out. What's most clear in this passage is that Paul is trying here to correct a misunderstanding which is causing the Thessalonians a lot of distress. Remember, the Thessalonians are suffering intense persecution. And Paul had written them the letter of 1 Thessalonians to encourage them to persevere in their suffering. In chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, we saw this several weeks. He had told them several weeks ago, he told them to hang in there. He told them that Jesus will return and, and he'll give you relief from your persecution and he'll punish those who are persecuting you. That day will come suddenly, he'd said. It will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. Well, evidently, somehow, someone had twisted those words and had convinced the Thessalonians that Paul meant that Jesus had already come. Now, I don't know how they got that out of Paul's words. In fact, Paul doesn't even know, and that's part of why he's so distressed. Verses 1 to 3, he says... 
We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or, or alarmed by some prophecy or report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. Paul doesn't even know how this deception got started. Was it a prophecy? Was it a, a, a verbal report? Was it a forged letter supposed to have come from him? He's shooting in the dark here. Who did this? How did they do it? How could his words be so badly misinterpreted? One of the reasons Paul is so distressed is because the Thessalonians are distressed. They're suffering. They're hoping for Jesus to come soon and rescue them. And now they find out he's already come. Well, where is he? Have they missed him? Is he going to leave them in their suffering? They're confused. They're alarmed. They're shaken. So what should Paul do to sort out this confusion? Well, he decides to remind them to go over again what he had told them on this subject back when he had been with them in person. And because we weren't there for that conversation between Paul and the Thessalonians, this is where things get tough for us. They already know what he's talking about, but we don't. So what can we pick up from listening to one side of the conversation? Well, evidently, he told them about a rebellion, which is to come. Verse three. And a man of lawlessness who is to be revealed. Verse three. And someone or something who is holding back the man of lawlessness until the proper time. Verse 6. And Paul concludes, remember, all of this still has to happen before Christ comes back. So, he can't have come back. That's Paul's conclusion. He can't have come back yet. Sure, his coming will be unexpected. But remember, I told you there are some prerequisites. And the Thessalonians hopefully would hear this and say, oh, yeah, we remember now. That stuff you told us about has to happen before Christ returns. You said that and it hasn't happened. So Christ hasn't come back yet. That makes sense. Phew, what a relief. Things are clear for us now. And the Thessalonians would be comforted and they would go right on to verse 13 and continue with the rest of the letter. But we're still at the end of verse 12, right? We're saying, wait, 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 wait. The rebellion, the man of who? Lawlessness, the one who is holding him back. What's this all about, right? Isn't that what we're saying? All right, so let's go back more slowly this time and see what we can figure out. Let's work through the passage, not verse by verse, but chronologically the things in chronological order that Paul is talking about here. Let's start with verse 7. The secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And, you know, if we could have the first slide now. Paul seems to be saying that there's an evil, lawless, godless influence currently in the world. Does that surprise anyone? It wouldn't have surprised the Thessalonians. They were being persecuted, after all. This lawless influence is all over the place today as it was then. 
But thankfully, mercifully, Paul says, its influence is being restrained and held back. Things are not as bad as they could be. Aren't you glad? Evil isn't allowed to run amok, at least not yet. But there will come a time, Paul says, when the restraining influence will be moved or removed. And I picture a a dam here holding back surging waters. And one day that dam will be breached and, and the power of evil will surge forth and engulf society, which up to that time had been somewhat protected. Paul calls this the rebellion. Some of your translations probably have the apostasy. And the word in Greek can mean either one, so it's not much help to us, which it is. Notice Paul doesn't detail who this rebellion or apostasy is against. Is it against God? Is it against God's people? Is it against good governments, the rule of law? Is it against all the above? Is it a moral or religious rebellion? Is it a... Uh, political one? Is it a military one? Maybe the Thessalonians already know, but we just don't. But we do know from Paul that prominent in this rebellion will be someone called the man of lawlessness. He, it seems, will become the leader of the rebellion, and he's the personification of lawlessness. Now, lawlessness in the New Testament involves blatant disregard for God's law. And not just the written law of the Old Testament Torah, which we have, but but any and every moral law. So lawlessness, in other words, is unrestrained wickedness and, and uninhabited evil of all kinds. That's what it means. And that's what this guy is like. Paul goes on to describe further what he'll be like. Verse 4, he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And here we need to recognize that Paul is alluding to two verses, Ezekiel 28.2 and Daniel 11.36. We'll put them on the screen in just a minute. Listen first to the English translation of Ezekiel 28.2 from the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament that Paul used. That verse in Ezekiel is about the king of Tyre who lifts up his heart against God and says, I am God, I live in God's dwelling place. The king of Tyre was a notoriously arrogant and wicked and anti-God king who, who even claimed to live in God's house, God's dwelling. Then there's Daniel 11.36, which warns about a coming king who will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself over every God and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. And most interpreters agree that that prophecy from Daniel referred, at least in its first instance, to Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian king from the mid-2nd century B.C. who conquered and ruled over the Jews around the time of the Maccabees. Antiochus was arrogant, he was ruthless, and he forced Greek culture on the Jews. He forbade the keeping of Torah, and he um, executed those who wouldn't comply. He believed that he was the Greek god Zeus incarnate, 
And so he set up an idol of Zeus as himself in the temple and he sacrificed a pig on the altar of God to it. Most people think that this was the abomination of desolation that Daniel was referring to. And Hanukkah celebrates the coming of the Maccabees who defeated Antiochus and repurified the temple and devoted it again to God's service. We'll add to this and these two prophecies from Ezekiel and Daniel that not ten years before the Thessalonians was written, this would be about 40 A.D., the Roman emperor Caligula had gotten furious with the Jews. And, and in his arrogance, he had tried to set up a statue of himself in God's temple. And only some very furious 11th hour diplomacy had prevented it. But the event was notorious. And so in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, Paul is describing the man of lawlessness as being like these past notorious kings. These kings who thought they were divine, who, who were arrogant and, and in one way or another had set themselves up as God in God's temple. That's the kind of guy that the man of lawlessness would be. And whether he will also literally set himself up in, in a Jewish temple is a matter of debate. And people take both sides on that one. Well, let's look at verse 9 now and see what else Paul says about this man of lawlessness. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles and signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. There will be miracles of all kinds to back this guy up. But notice Paul doesn't say that this guy necessarily does these miracles, but rather that they accompany his coming. It's, it's unclear who does them in, in Paul here. But don't think that just because someone does a miracle, they're a godly person necessarily. Satan does miracles too, as Paul makes clear here. And look who's tricked by these miracles. Verse 10, it's not the Thessalonians, it's not believers, but it's those who are perishing so that they will go along with the rebellion, Paul says. But here comes the good news. In verse 3, Paul has already assured us that this man is doomed to destruction. And now in verse 8, Paul says, The Lord Jesus will come and overthrow him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the splendor of his coming. And then back in verse 1, we could add, Jesus will gather his people to himself. Don't lose hope, even if things get really bad, Paul's saying. Ultimately, God is in control of history. And in the end, his people will live happily ever after. That's the main reality we need to hold on to. Amen? But here's a lingering question. What do we do with verse 11? For this reason, it says, God sends them, those who are perishing, a powerful delusion, these false miracles which will come, so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. What do we make of that? Paul is saying that those 
who do not believe the truth but delight in wickedness will be sent a deception by God. God will allow these uh, false miracles um, which are done through the power of Satan to take place to deceive people. Because those who are perishing refuse to love the truth and to be saved, Paul says, God will send them a lie so powerful that they'll be swept up in it and they'll throw in their lot with the man of lawlessness and go to their ultimate doom at the end of the rebellion when Christ comes and ends it. Now, why would God do this? Well, it's nothing new in the Bible, actually. The theologians actually have a fancy word for it. They call it judicial hardening. For example, in Exodus, the wicked Pharaoh persecutes God's people, even drowning their babies in the Nile River. And so God says, fine, I will harden his heart to the point that he will actually take me on in battle and then I will drown his army in the Red Sea. That's what his punishment's going to be. In Isaiah, the Israelites grow wicked to the point that they refuse to be faithful to God or to listen to the prophets that he sends. And so God says, okay, here's what their punishment's going to be. Isaiah 6, I will close their ears altogether. They'll no longer hear any of my words until their evil is so great that I punish them and send them to exile. And likewise, in our passage, God will take those who reject God and his truth and who are bent on wickedness, and he'll send them a powerful deception, Paul says, so that they throw in their lot with the all-out rebellion against God, and then Christ will come and destroy them. It's the same pattern in each case. But why would God do this? Well, I think a clue to the answer is found back in chapter 1. We saw it last week. Chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians, the Thessalonians were suffering, they were being persecuted, and they were thriving spiritually under their persecution. They were growing in love, growing in their faith. And Paul said in 1.5 that this was evidence that God's judgment is right and just. And I suspect that the final rebellion that Paul speaks about in chapter 2 is also further evidence that God's judgment is right. Now let me explain. We all know how to put on a nice face. Have you ever seen a movie where there was a, a questionable character who you suspect is a bad guy, but he's so slick, his, his hands always come up looking clean? Someone is wreaking havoc, and the good guys suspect it's him, but they can't prove it. And so what do they do? Well, they try to trick him. They try to, to goad him into showing his true colors. They, they try to get him to show himself for what he really is. Because then, if they can do that, they, they may have sufficient evidence to confirm their suspicions and to convict this guy. And I think that's what this rebellion is about. There are plenty of nice people out there who want nothing to do with God or with Jesus. They're good citizens. They pay their taxes. They help their neighbors. And they think they're doing just fine. And yet, they're an unseen drag on the kingdom of God. Maybe it's the pornography that they secretly consume. Maybe it's their meanness toward their spouse or their children when no one is looking. 
Maybe it's their business decisions which help the bottom line but which hurt their employees. Whatever it is, they have rationalizations and, and nobody calls them out. The secret power of lawlessness is already at work, Paul says. But it's secret. People don't see it. They don't recognize it for what it is. And so if God were to judge such people now, everyone would cry foul. God, how could you punish such nice people? So just to prove that all this niceness is a front, which God already knows, and that it's covering a deeply rebellious heart, God will trick such people into showing their true colors. He'll send them a deception so that they show what they're really capable of. There will be a major rebellion, Paul says, near the end of history, and everyone will be forced to choose sides between the man of lawlessness and Jesus, the man of sorrows. And suddenly, these people who thought they were pretty good, and maybe we thought they were pretty good too, will find themselves passionately fighting against God himself, the one who created them. Which is what they were really doing all along without anybody realizing it. Only now, their rebellion, their pride, their wickedness is out in the open for all to see. And so there will be no question of God's judgment when he judges them and of his justice. And, and that's where this passage ends, verse 12. Paul says, and so all will be condemned, or some translations, all will be judged, who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. And that's been Paul's concern all along in this letter. The, the Thessalonians, who he loves so much, are suffering terrible persecution. And no doubt those who are persecuting them think that they're in the right for doing it. Just like Paul thought he was in the right when he was persecuting God's people. But Paul is trying to encourage the Thessalonians that in fact they are in the right. And so they should keep hanging in there. Because one day, Paul says, Jesus will come back and will we'll judge who is right and who is wrong. And you Thessalonians will receive relief. And those who are opposing you will be punished. So here's the application for us. What's in your heart? What's in my heart? If things really heat up, if the pressure is turned up, and we have to choose between Jesus and, and being persecuted like the Thessalonians were and even put to death for our faith, or on the other hand, we can choose to go the way of the world in rebellion to God. Which will we choose? Will we stick with Jesus come what may? Or will our veneer of religious niceness be stripped off and our basically rebellious heart be uncovered so that we side with the rebellion, which at that moment seems the safer, the much safer thing to do? I think that's the challenge of this passage for us. Which side are we really on? All right, but before we're done, we still have some questions about all this prophetic detail, don't we? We've exhausted what we can learn from Paul about these end time matters, but we haven't looked yet elsewhere in the Bible to see what details they can fill in for us. And one place we can immediately look is the letters of First and Second John, where John speaks of 
the Antichrist. In 1 John 2.18, he says, The Antichrist is coming. And even now, many Antichrists have come into the world. And I think this fits very well with what Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians. So we can use the name Antichrist if we want for this man of lawlessness because this man of lawlessness is a rival to Christ. In fact, Paul deliberately uses the same language in in our passage this morning to talk about the man of lawlessness as he uses to talk about Christ. In verse 1, Paul speaks of the coming of Christ. In verse 9, he speaks of the coming of the man of lawlessness. In chapter 1, verse 7, Paul had said, we saw last week, Christ will be revealed. And now in chapter 2, verses 3, 6, and 8, he says, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And of course, miracles, signs, and wonders accompanied Christ's ministry. And likewise, Paul says, they will accompany that of the man of lawlessness, verse 9. So the man of lawlessness is an anti-Christ, you could say. And just as John says that there are even now many antichrists in the world, so Paul says even now the secret power of lawlessness is already at work in the world. But both agree there's still a big one coming. Well, we find this same antichrist theme again in the book of Revelation. Revelation talks about a terrible beast who has a sidekick, the false prophet, who does miracles. And together they deceive the nations and they lead the world in in rebellion against God. But Revelation says they'll be defeated by Christ at his coming and thrown into the lake of fire. It's a similar scenario again. So we see this pattern in scripture. So now for the question we'd really like to know. Who is this Antichrist? Can we identify him today? When will he come? Who in the world is restraining him? And for better or worse, the answer to most of these questions is we just don't have any idea. We have no idea who's restraining him. Verse 6 says that Paul says the Thessalonians already know. He's already told them, so he doesn't bother to tell them again. And so we don't know. And we don't know how long he will be restrained or when he will come. The Antichrist has been identified many, many times already by Christians, all for naught. First, he was the Roman Emperor Nero. Then he was Genseric, the Vandal who sacked Rome. Then he was the prophet Muhammad. Then he was the Pope or one of the Holy Roman Emperors or Napoleon or Hitler or Stalin or the head of the United Nations or of the World Council of Churches or even one of our recent presidents, or I've even heard George Lucas. (laughs) By a man I respect a great deal. You can think about that. The problem is, though, that there are many antichrists who come before the final big one. And so it's hard to tell in the moment if the latest candidate being put forward is the final big one or just one in a long line of little ones or none of the above. So my point in in digging into all these prophetic details this morning is this. It's to encourage us to read Scripture carefully, not to make it say more than it really says, and not to get taken in by teachers out there who have their prophetic schemes and who cherry-pick verses here and there 
to support their views without first carefully paying attention to what those verses are actually saying in the context in which they were being written. My uh, New Testament professor said, think paragraphs. Read, understand, paragraph by paragraph. Just don't take a verse, pull it out, and think you know what it means. Because when we do that, when we cherry pick, not only do we easily come up with wrong information, but we quickly get distracted from the point for which those verses were being written in the first place. And here's the phone call to tell us the point. (laughs) In this case, the point is not to satisfy our curiosity about end-time scenarios, but rather it's to encourage some confused Christians who had forgotten what they had been told. And for us today, it's to challenge us in light of the future and what's coming to consider where our true allegiance lies and to encourage us that ultimately God is in control And his son, Jesus, and those who follow Jesus faithfully will win in the end. So let's pray. God, thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit to inspire Paul, who was confused and at his wit's end about how to respond to the problem that was going on in Thessalonica. And you inspired him to take this tack, to remind them of things he had already told them. And thank you that although this is one of those places of scripture which is fuzzy for us, yet there is also something here for us. Thank you for the reminder. Um about yourself and the opportunity we have to oppose you and stand against you and that the battle lines are being drawn and you already see who's on what side even though it's not clear to the whole world yet that you will judge justly who deserves to be rewarded and who deserves to be punished and I pray that you would work in us through this scripture that we would cast our lot with your son Jesus fully and wholeheartedly come what may and that we would be filled with hope and expectation that one day he's coming back to rescue us. And God, give us the courage and the love to share the good news about Jesus that there's still time to come over to his side so that people do not need to find themselves on the other side when the end comes. Give us boldness and courage to share that message. Amen.